I was struck this week as I was looking through the songbook how few songs there are that speak of God's uh, judgment and God's wrath. It's, uh, it's a concept that is something that I think we often feel uncomfortable talking about, singing about, thinking about, and yet it is at the core to some extent of what we'll look at both this morning and this evening. And so I think it's an important truth for us to consider. Sooner or later, we all get in situations where we wonder if it's worth continuing on or getting out. Maybe you tackle a house project and realize that it's more than you planned on. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but for me it was realizing that you don't start a plumbing project on, Sunday, on Saturday night when uh, Lowe's and Home Depot are about to close, because that is more stress than you need in your life. Maybe you have a difficult assignment at work that becomes very stressful and overwhelming and you, you say, I, I don't know if it's worth persisting in this project. What can I do? Maybe you decide to participate on a team or in a race or some kind of similar athletic event and the training is really hard. You say, I don't want to keep getting up really early in the morning to run or, or whatever else. In the midst of those situations, and usually there comes a point when you say, am I going to quit or am I going to keep going? Why would you stick it out in the house project or in the work assignment or in the athletic event? More importantly, why should we stick with it when it comes to following Jesus in our daily lives? The passage that we're going to look at this morning from 2 Thessalonians, I think, gives us at least three answers to those questions. So listen for those as we go through the message. But before we get there, I think it's helpful for us to have some background. And... Um, I know sometimes, uh, sometimes people will say, well, we've, we've looked at this passage in the recent months, and, and I'll admit I've been where you've sat, and somebody said, I preached on this a year ago, three years ago, four years ago, whatever it is, and I say, I, I don't really remember what was said. That being said, uh, for sake of time uh, this morning, I would refer you to the sermon that I did on April 29th in the morning for more of the background of second, uh, to the Thessalonian epistles. And I'm just going to highlight the two differences between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Obviously, the first one would be date. Uh, 2 Thessalonians was written somewhere between a few months up to a year after uh, 1 Thessalonians. Paul's writing them a further letter. In the last letter, he was encouraged. Uh, he was excited for the good report from Timothy. And now he comes to this letter and he says, It sounds like people are discouraging you persuading you that you're again that you maybe you're missing out on something of what God has promised and so I'm writing to remind you of these things these truths and I'm also writing you in the context of suffering you're facing suffering so why should you keep following Jesus in the midst of that suffering so he's writing to strengthen them both from false teaching possibly from within possibly from without and also from persecution that's coming from outside the church and so he says Keep following Jesus even in the midst of your trials. And he gives us, I think, three reasons, and them, three reasons. For, first of all, why should they keep following Jesus? And the first reason would be this. Keep following Jesus because you're not alone. Look at verse 3, where he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. And then verse 4, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith. We'll talk about what it is that he's referring to in a moment, but I think in connection with them not being alone, I think Paul is reminding them 
I am praying for you. Other churches are aware of your situation. So you're not in this suffering off by yourself. And it's easy for us to adopt that attitude when it comes to following Christ. I'm following Christ. All these people around me aren't. Uh, maybe you work with, with no one else who's a Christian. Maybe no one else in your family is a Christian. Am I alone? You know, Elijah thought he was alone, and what did God remind him? There's a whole lot of prophets who have not bowed the knee to serve Baal, who haven't followed an idolatry. So even though it may feel like you're the only one, you're not the only one. We see in verse 3 that fellow believers uh, here were thanking God for growing faith and love. He said, we ought always to give thanks to God because your faith is greatly enlarged. What does that mean? Their faith is growing. It's expanding. It's, it's becoming stronger. And who's the we? Uh, probably Paul and Silvanus and Timothy in context. And so here's people who administer to the church of Thessalonica. And they're, now they're communicating with them. And they're saying, we're praying for you. We're thanking God for you. We're remembering you in our prayers. I'm sure that this probably calls to mind what he said back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, that we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And he also said a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, um, and verses 9 and 10 with regards to what they were thanking God for. He said, We have no need for anyone to write to you, for you are taught by God to love one another, and you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So he says he's thanking God that their faith is growing. He's thanking God that their love for one another is growing. And so the thing that he had been praying for them and writing them about in the first letter is coming to pass. It's, it's being fulfilled. They're doing it. But they're also doing it in the context of difficulty. But before we get to that, look at the first phrase of verse 4. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you. And we, we read that phrase and we say, isn't pride sinful? Why would Paul say he's speaking proudly of them? And I think it's interesting to note that Paul primarily does not take issue with the idea of boasting. He has a problem with boasting in the wrong thing. So what are some wrong things for us to boast in? Wrong things for us to boast in are things where we say, look at me, I'm amazing in this way when it has something that has nothing to do with us. Some of us are tall, some of us are short. There are characteristics about us genetically that we can't change. If we boast in those things, it's pride. Why? Because we receive them from the hand of God. If we boast in things that we accomplish in life, we say, well, I did this thing. Again, is that a right grounds of boasting? Well, to some extent, it's not wrong to have satisfaction in what you've accomplished, but consider how you were able to accomplish it. The circumstances in which you were able to accomplishment were largely had nothing to do with you. They had to do with your family background, with people who taught you in school, a whole bunch of other things like that. And so Paul is saying a proper grounds of boasting here is the work that God is doing in the lives of other Christians. So you're not boasting in yourself. You're not boasting in something that you couldn't change or something that only happened because of a lot of other people around you. You're boasting because of what God is accomplishing in and among you. He's boasting in God. Now, if you notice, uh, just remembering back to 1 Thessalonians 1, he said in 1.8, we have no need to say anything. So their testimony had spread far and wide. He didn't feel like he had to tell people about their testimony. Why does he say here 
that he is boasting or speaking proudly of them among the churches of God. I think he's saying it for their encouragement. And I don't think he's going back on what he said earlier. The one was, the fact that you're Christians, that's spread around. The fact that you are an example of following God, that's spread around. But the fact that you are further persevering in the midst of trials, that's something that I want to highlight for these other churches, perhaps as an example, but also certainly as an encouragement for the Thessalonian believers. So we see what he says here in verses 3 and 4. But I think we all recognize that when we're in the middle of one of those situations where we say, I don't know if I should stick it out. I don't know if I can stick it out. Sometimes an explanation of why we should do it helps us more than, good job, which is I think what we see in verse 3, or I'm proud of you, which is what I think we see in verse 4. So he starts there, and those are not bad places to start, but he also moves into an explanation. Why stick with it? Why keep following Jesus? Not just because you're not alone, not just because Paul was aware of them and other churches were aware of them, but also because following Jesus is worth it. Why do I say that? Verse 5, I think, shows us that following Jesus is worth it because it shows your faith is real. Now, the question for us is when it says there at the beginning of verse 5, this is a plain indication, what is the this? Or, if you just went from verse 4 into verse 5, the persecutions and afflictions which you endure, a plain indication. Is it their perseverance in faith? Is it their suffering? Is it their suffering? Is it their perseverance in faith in the midst of suffering? And uh, there's a variety of perspectives on this. But I think in the context of what he's saying, I think the entirety of what's going on there is what is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. And that sounds puzzling to us. To say, you're in a trial, you're suffering, and you keep believing God in it, how is that an indication of God's righteous judgment? Because if God was really righteous in his judgment, wouldn't he say, you don't deserve to be in this trial, and he would take you out of the trial? I think that's something that we need to consider. But I think this verse reminds us that following Jesus in the midst of trials is something that only a genuine Christian would do. Consider the example of the martyrs. Why would they die for something they didn't believe in? Now, I will grant you, it's possible for someone to die for a foolish reason, a foolish cause, because they believe in it wholeheartedly. But at the very least, we cannot accuse those who died of Christianity as dying for something they thought was a lie, as dying for something that they thought was foolish and, and not worth living for. Only someone who genuinely believes what the Bible says, who genuinely follows God, is going to be willing to go to the point of being torn apart by the lions or being burned at the stake or all of these sorts of things. Because it would be the, the height of foolishness for someone to say, well, I don't really believe this, but I'm willing to die for it. Who would do that? Consider also the, the parallel with the parable of the soils that Jesus gives in Matthew 13 and other, other Gospels that trouble or persecution coming will cause the one whose faith is not genuine to fall away. Cares of the world will choke it out. The temptation of the devil will draw them astray. Genuine faith is the only reasonable explanation for persevering in these sorts of trials. But furthermore, and this I think is what Paul highlights even more, following Jesus in the midst of trials shows worthiness to be part of the kingdom of God. And this is something where, where we sort of stop and we say, I'm not sure about this verse. Why? 
Because at first glance, we read this verse and it sounds like because you're following God in the midst of trials, that's a good work and God's going to take you to heaven because of it. That's what it sounds like if you read it first glance. Why do I think that that's not what this verse is saying? I think what Paul is doing here is he's highlighting the contrast between God's righteous judgment and the judgment of other people. Why is this significant? Well, if you think of the example of of Job as one instance, what did Job's friends say was the reason for his trials? They said, the reason for your trials is because you've sinned and God is punishing you. But I think Paul is highlighting that God's judgment is more important than man's judgment and that in the scope of God's judgment, God's assessment, God can say, I'm putting you in this trial for a reason other than punishment. Persevering through that suffering means that God judges us worthy and His judgment is what counts. This reminds me of a similar passage in uh, 1 Peter where it says that, um, that, that you are those who are... that the world looks at you and their opinion of, the, of you is this. This person is suffering and it's not fair and it's not worth doing and, and, and why, why would they be going through that? But if suffering accomplishes more than merely punishment, then that suffering and faith in the midst of that suffering can be a sign that God is recognizing His people and doing something in their lives. I think it's very important that we recognize that we are not worthy in ourselves. When it says you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, it's not as though we're earning our way to God. It's rather, if you step back and you say, this person has faith in a trial. What's the source of that faith? Is it something that just sort of arose out of them without any, anything else happening? No, the source of that faith would be, as it says in Ephesians, that that faith, is a, that faith and the salvation accompanying it, that is a gift of God. And so God is the one who has initiated that work and is sustaining that work. And that means that, as we'll see later in verse 10, God comes to be glorified in His saints. Who gets the ultimate praise for our persevering in trials? Not us. It's God. And yet I don't think that we want to blunt the force of the passage and say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, God never evaluates anybody on the basis of their works. I think the Bible does teach that God evaluates people on the basis of what they do. Why would I argue that? Paul talks about it extensively in the book of Romans. But here's the difference. Our good works before God are not the basis of God accepting us into His presence. Our good works before God are evidence of what He has done in and among us in our lives. And that's a a, a significant difference that we must not miss the importance of. Because if... If our good works is the basis of God accepting us, then that means we can earn our way to God. If our good works are evidence of work that God had already begun in us, then He gets the praise for it, and it's a testimony to those around us that should point them to God as well. And so, what is verse 5 saying? God has placed you in this trial. God placed you in this trial, seeing your faith, In the midst of suffering, God says, this person belongs to me. There's perhaps overtones of of what it says in Hebrews 12, that that there is discipline 
and the discipline doesn't seem good, it seems sorrowful at the time, and yet it accomplishes righteousness in us. And so there is a place for God to bring even bad things into our lives and to evaluate us on the basis of those things and say, this is someone who belongs to me. And that's so foreign to our, our understanding of life today. I'm a Christian. You hear people on the TV, on the radio, online, wherever. What do they say? You're a Christian. God's going to bring good things into your life. You're a Christian. Life is going to be better. You trust Jesus. You won't have problems in your marriage, with your money, with any of these other things. And it's tempting for us to say that to people, right? You need to believe in Jesus because life will be better. And the reality is life may get a whole lot worse. And you say, well, that's discouraging. That's not a very good sales pitch. Well, we're not selling something, are we? We're calling people, as Paul did in Acts 17, we're calling people to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's a message that Jesus preached, that John the Baptist uh, went before him and preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have to turn away from our sin and turn to God, not so God will make our lives better, though He often does generously and graciously and more than we can ask or think, but because He has commanded us to do this. And we'll highlight this as well in uh, verse 5, the idea of obeying the gospel. God commands us. It's not as though here we can say, come here and you can take it or leave it. God says you need to do this. And there's consequences for rejecting that message. And so let's go to verse 6. Why is following Jesus worth it? Because it shows your faith is real. Not in and of yourself, but because of what God has done in you. But also at the same time, something where we should not see it as God punishing us. We should not see it as, um, I'm somehow less because I'm going through this trial. We should see it as an evidence of God's presence and God's work in our lives. It's also worth it following Jesus because God will give you rest. We see this in the larger section, verses 6 through 10. How does he do this? First of all, verse 6, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And it's, it's interesting the phrasing there. God will afflict those who afflict you. Those who are causing trouble for you, God will cause trouble for them. Why is this significant? Well, think about what it says in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why is vengeance God's job? Because we don't have the knowledge or the ability to do it right. And because we don't have the restraint to do it justly. But God can take vengeance appropriately and far more thoroughly than you and I could ever hope to do. And so verse 6 where it says, God will repay with affliction those who afflict you. God's not looking at his people suffering and saying, oh well, hope it all works out in the end. God is aware of what's going on, and God will call those who afflict his people into account, and so we can rest and be assured that justice will be accomplished. But he says then in verse 7 that he will give you relief or rest. And when it says God will relieve you, relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, we say, well, that sounds good. When's that going to happen? He says at the end of the verse, when Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Well, wait a minute. How is that rest? How is that relief? That's a long time down the road. How does that help me now? 
probably the best way to understand this is that God will punish in the end those who oppress you, along with, verse 8, all those who don't obey the gospel. So in, when you're in the midst of that suffering, and you say that this person is afflicting me and causing me trouble, how can there be rest in the midst of that suffering? Recognize that God gives grace in the midst of that trial, and God will give final and lasting rest in the context of the return of Christ. And that gives us hope in the midst of the difficulty, not that the difficulty is taken away, not that it is, uh, the, the pain of it is somehow magically disappears, but rather that God will give us relief in His timing and according to His plan. When does this take place? It says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. So when will this take place? When Jesus returns to the earth to conquer and to rule. That is when this promised rest will be fully brought to accomplishment. And it's interesting that this passage groups together punishment and relief. Um, and in the Bible, sometimes we see these things connected more closely than we would, more closely than we would think. Uh, that God is going to punish the enemies, for example, in the Old Testament. I'm going to punish your enemies, Israel. What's the corresponding benefit of that for Israel? If God punishes his enemies, that's going to bring deliverance for the Israelites. In the same way, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers, he said God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God's going to give you rest. To some extent, they're, they're two sides of the same thing. God's coming is going to accomplish both the punishment of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. But those don't happen in precisely the same moment. And this, I think, is clarified for us in Revelation 19 and 20. We'll look a little bit more at that tonight. But essentially, Revelation 19 and 20 says that there is judgment of sinners, that there is deliverance of saints, and it all happens in the same series of end times events. It just doesn't happen in the same moment. This verse 8, where it says, God will deal out retribution to those who don't know him and those who do not obey the gospel. It's interesting, I think, that God is showing kindness to his people by afflicting his enemies. I think there's parallels to Isaiah 66, 13 to 16, which says this, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. But he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. And so even back in the book of Isaiah, God was foretelling a time in which God was going to deliver specifically the people of Israel, but we see also by application the church and judge those who had rejected him. This final and severe judgment would have at least two parts according to the book of Revelation. The wicked living during the tribulation would be punished with the beast and the false prophet, at the end of Revelation 19, and the wicked who gather against Christ after the thousand-year reign of Christ will be punished along with Satan, Revelation 20. What's the significance of those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? This is a hard truth for us to consider because we look at this and we say, those who don't know God, 
Those who don't know God should be off the hook because they didn't know. But like many other instances in life, I was ignorant doesn't always excuse us from having violated some rule or ordinance or law. It usually means more lenience, but it usually means it usually doesn't mean you get off completely free. And in God's system that he has set up, someone cannot say, well, I never heard, so I, it's no big deal. I, I, I get to go to heaven, right? And we look at that and we say, well, that's not fair. Well, the thing that we should be thinking instead of that's not fair is, what am I not doing that God has called me to do? Because what does it say in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless someone uh, goes? And how will someone go unless they've been sent? And it says, and we look at this and we say, why would it say this? How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news? The person that brings the message of the gospel is looking at someone particularly in the context of a passage like this, and saying there are two options. This person hears and believes the message, or this person faces God's fiery judgment. And that doesn't grab our attention like it should. It doesn't grab my attention. It doesn't grab your attention because we don't see it around us on a daily basis. We don't think about the judgment of God. We think that's a long way off. Everyone has time. All of these sorts of things. And the reality is... We don't have tomorrow guaranteed for us, and God's return may not be a long way off. We don't know when He's coming back, and when He does come back, it's going to set into motion a series of events, the end of which is going to be God pouring out His wrath against sin, and those who are not under the protection of a relationship with Jesus Christ are going to be swept away in the flood of God's wrath, burned up in the fire of God's wrath, not annihilated, but eternally condemned, facing the lake of fire and all of the other horrors that come to those who don't know God. And so when someone says to you, I'll follow God later. When someone says to you, whatever else along those lines, particularly someone who's heard the gospel, which I think is where the second part of the verse comes in, those who do not obey the gospel... This is talking potentially about the same group. Those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel to some extent are the same group, right? But even those who haven't heard are still condemned by God, according to Romans 1. And those who have heard have not just said, you know what, the gospel is kind of like one of those flyers for a restaurant that you get on your door or in your mailbox. I want to try this out. I don't want to try this out. I'm going to throw it away. We can't treat the gospel like that. God doesn't treat the gospel like that. And we cannot allow people around us to treat the gospel like that. We have to make it clear to them. You can reject this message. But you rejecting this message is not like one of two equally good options. You rejecting this message means that you are going to face God's future judgment, even as it says in John 3, you are already condemned because you don't believe in His only begotten Son. And so when we see a verse like this, a verse like this should make us stop. First of all, do I know God? Do I obey the gospel? Uh, do I am believing in Jesus? Do I have a relationship with God? But secondly, because I assume that's where we all are, secondly, moving on from that, what about all the people around me? 
And it's so easy to look at the people around us. They're doing construction on 13 Mile, and so I go up and down 13 Mile. It's so easy to look at those people around us as, here's an obstacle that this person is to me getting home, or whatever else. Do we see people in the context of, of, of a passage like this, verse 8? And he, he, he intensifies it even more in verse 9. God's punishment is eternal separation and wrath. These will pay the, the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And this highlights for us two things. First of all, it's eternal destruction. There are people who have tried to, to minimize the weight of being apart from God, of, of not believing in God and the consequences that come from it by saying, well, it's like a, a moment of time and they're punished for a moment, and then they're just burned up and, and they're gone. They don't exist anymore. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says here, eternal destruction. This is something that lasts, that persists, as real as the promise of eternal life for those who follow Jesus is the promise of eternal destruction for those who do not follow Jesus. And again, that should stop us in our tracks and make us think about this why is that so horrible it's not just and we tend to emphasize these other things uh or it says in mark the the worm that does not die the fire is that not quenched you know those sorts of ideas you don't want to go to hell because it's a place of burning what does paul say here you don't want to be eternally separated from god because it means you are apart from god forever the greatest torment of those who are apart from God's presence is the fact that they are apart from God's presence, away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. We should think about that. And then in verse 10, he turns it, he turns it around. Just one more thing about verse 9. Uh, consider Jesus' parable in Luke 16. There's a great gulf fixed. You know, the story of Lazarus and the rich man? There's a great gulf fixed. There's a, a gap that cannot be crossed. The only satisfaction of God's wrath is found where? It's in Jesus, Romans 3, 24-25. And so the only appropriate response for us and for anyone else is to cast ourselves on God's mercy offered through Jesus. But then Paul reminds us in verse 10 that God's punishment is not for His people. And so that, that brings back around to how does this give us rest? How does the knowledge of God's judgment in any way bring any kind of comfort or help to God's people? Because he describes the, the terrors of being apart from God, and then he says, but if you believe in Jesus, that's not for you. What does he say in verse 10? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at, among all who have believed. Verse 9, these will be away from the glory of His power. You will see the glory of His power and marvel at it and rejoice in it. And why is Paul confident that they were going to see that? Look at the end of verse 10. Our testimony to you was believed. So what's the difference between someone who faces God's judgment and someone who looks forward to the day when God's glory will be revealed? Have you believed the testimony, the message of the gospel that the apostles brought? Keep following Jesus because you're not alone. Keep following Jesus because following Him is worth it, both in terms of showing that your faith is real and giving you rest, 
both now and in the future, and keep following Jesus because you need to grow up more. Going back to the race analogy. What's our attitude toward people who say, you know, I'm, I'm five yards from the finish line, but I'm just going to quit running, I'm done. We would rightfully mock a person like that. Why? You're in the race. Why not finish it out? Similarly, Paul describes his life in this way. I press toward the mark of the call of God. And he doesn't say what we see in 2 Timothy until he's about to go to meet God. And what's that? I finished the course. So right at the point when he's about to die, then he says, my race is done. Until that point, you're not finished. So what does that mean? It means we need to keep following Jesus because we need to grow more. And this is something that I think happens in in response to prayers that other believers pray for us. Verse 11, to this end we pray for you always. What? That our God will count you worthy of your calling. What does he say in verse 5? So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. To some extent, Paul is saying you're already considered worthy. But he's also saying, I'm praying that for the future as well. That that you will keep living out this testimony that you have professed. What does that mean for us? We ought to be praying that none of us falls short. That God will count us worthy of the calling that He has called us to. Does this mean that we can lose our salvation? No. But sometimes we're too quick to jump there and we say, so, I'm good. God puts the warnings against falling away in Scripture precisely because His people will pay attention to them and will not fall away by His grace. We ought to be praying furthermore that God will help us to do good works. It says, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I think this goes back to what he was praying for them in 1 Thessalonians, where he says he's thanking God for their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. That God will fulfill every desire for goodness. Not all of our desires are for goodness, but for everyone that pleases God and leads to good works. Paul is praying that God will strengthen that, bring it about, and that the work of faith will have power, and that we will grow. We need to continue to grow up in Christ. And then verse 12. Why do we grow up? If we keep following God because we need to grow up more, if it happens in response to the prayers of fellow believers, among other things, why does God want us to grow up more? So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. Again, who gets the praise for all of this work that's done in our lives? It's God. It's not about you or me, but that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And I think that we understand that when it says the name of our Lord Jesus, we mean the person of our Lord Jesus, because the name and the reputation of that name is attached to the person of Christ. The secondary result is what? And you and Him. But Paul puts that second because our first goal is to glorify God, The necessary result of that is that we share in that glory, which we can certainly rejoice in. And how is it all brought about? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you going to keep following Jesus? There are many reasons that we should do so, but Paul highlights at least three of them. Keep following Jesus because you're not alone in this. 
we're part of a local church body that's trying to follow Jesus together. As we were reminded in Sunday school, we're part of a, a, a fellowship of believers that spans the world that is seeking to follow Jesus together, united around the truth that we find in Scripture, united by the person of Christ as well. Furthermore, God has promised rest. That rest may seem a long way off, but it's real, and if we're following Jesus, it's for us. And then finally, we haven't gotten there yet, so don't stop running the race. Keep following Jesus. Let's pray, and then I'll have the, uh, the men come forward for the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we look at these truths of your word, help us not to fear your judgment if we're in Christ as though we were to face it, but help us to fear it that it might motivate us to point others around us to you. Help us to see the trials that you have brought in our lives not as a punishment, not as a... or not, not merely as punishment, not as a a sign that we don't belong to you, but rather as a sign that we do. And the fact that we are facing trials in this life to a certain extent means or is connected with the idea that we are not going to face your wrath in the future. Lord, help us to keep following you. You are the one who gives us the strength to do it. And so we ask you for that strength for all of us here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.